Hey, this is Daryl letting you know that today's show is sponsored by Fubo TV. If you've heard us talking about Fubo TV, but you don't quite know what it is, let me give you the quick explainer. It is an over-the-top internet television service. That basically means it's not cable, it's not a satellite, but you can get all the TV channels you need, especially if what you need is soccer. NBC Sports, Fox Sports 1 and 2, Be In Sports, Two Day NA, all kinds of others that I haven't mentioned yet, and a recent announcement that Fubo TV will soon be adding ESPN, which I believe will make Fubo TV the first over the top provider to have the full set all the mainstream soccer channels in one place and some non-mainstream ones as well. I recommend the family plan where three people can watch at once. There's lots of cloud DVR space. You can fill it with soccer. I still haven't filled mine and I DVR everything. And at around $50 a month, it is way more affordable than cable. So if you're interested, please go to fubo.tv slash TSS. That's fubo.tv slash TSS. Start your seven-day free trial. Take a look. Check it out. You won't regret it. It's fubo.tv slash TSS. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by a man who just took a job as head of sandwiches at Major League Soccer. His name <laughs> is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I didn't want to leave the show, but for the price they're charging, they did offer me a salary of $800 million a year, <laughs> and it's tough to turn that down, Daryl. It's tough to turn that down. <laughs> so most people would have seen um, on social media today, I think Omar Gonzalez was first to tweet the uh, room service sandwich he had in Orlando while he's at the MLS is back tournament. It was not appetizing looking. No, it was not. It did. There have been many jokes that it looked like something that was served at the Fire Festival. To be fair, it looked better than what was served at the Fire Festival, <laughs> but not a lot better. The description sounded delicious. I'll give them that. It did, yeah. They should. Um, in England, there's a thing called the Advertising Standards Board, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can, and you can sort of sue if it doesn't match the description. I, I feel like Omar could have a case. Uh, yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, he did. I think he had removed the bag of chips though, right? That had already yes. been consumed by the time the photo was taken. I guess so. Or it was out of shot at least. Yeah. Um, it was so maybe they were gold. We don't know. They could have been gold plated potato chips and that it does kind have. of justify the price at that point. It does. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of people noticed that it was uh fully basically sandwich and a banana and a little tub of potato salad and a bag of chips. Mm-hmm. Um, it was $65. Uh, yeah. we did, we did some journalisming. We did some journalism in <laughs> yeah. and we've pretty much confirmed that the players don't have to pay that themselves. It's basically what the resort will end up charging Major League Soccer as an organization, right? So it's, it's that. The other thing that I believe I'm correct in saying from what I have heard and what I understand to be the case is that it's, those are also the prices the players do have to pay if they want extra food. So if, say, you went down and had lunch at the buffet or whatever they have and you went back upstairs and you were still hungry and you wanted something extra, then you're going to have to pay that out of pocket. But it's sort of the bonus meal. They want you to know how much you're going to be paying when you order that. Wait, but so are you, saying, that, yes. are you saying Omar Gonzalez did pay $65 for that sandwich or See, Omar Gonzalez, it, it's expensive? by major league soccer it could be either one if he if he like skipped lunch then it's apparently covered if he ate lunch and then wanted more food and ordered that then he has to pay for it well who's counting is someone counting whether omar went down and had the like the 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 league-wide pasta and also an extra sandwich or not 
I mean, you've been to MLS events. There's probably tickets or bracelets or something that they track. Yeah, I feel like that's probably how they're doing it. <laughs> they've got one of their people from the uh, stats department. They've got, they've got an yep. opta person there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marking down who's having what for lunch. Yes, uh, yes. Also, can't let this segment go without noting that maybe Lucille Bluth was right. <laughs> so it's Lucille Bluth says a banana $7 and Jack Donaghy says a gallon of milk is $90. Yeah. So yeah, I think if you're going with that pricing, it sort of starts to add up a bit. I think Lucille's quote was, how much could a banana cost, Michael? $10? (laughs) $10, excuse me. (laughs) I undersold. (laughs) If you want um, better MLS content than we are Mm. offering right now, I can recommend recommend MLS Assist, which has, up until now, been publishing in the Total Soccer Show feed. It's with Joe Lowry and Jordan Angeli, and they break down the tactical side of Major League Soccer. We can announce because we just got word. I'm not exaggerating, Taylor. Five minutes before we started recording, um, we mm-hmm. just got word. We've got the green light from The Athletic. MLS Assist is going to spin off into its own separate feed. And Joe and Jordan are going to be doing a show every day through MLS's back. So you will be getting lots of match reviews from Joe and Jordan if you go and subscribe to the now separate solo MLS Assist feed. They've flown the nest, Taylor. They've flown the nest. This is my question, Daryl, is like, what do we do with the, with their rooms at TSS Tower now that they're gone? Do we keep them as they were? Do we preserve them pr- for posterity? Do we turn them into a gym? Does it become Daryl's smoking lounge? Like, what are we going to do now that we have this extra space? We do pro well, right? So we just promote two more people there. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> so so we're the parents who, uh, as soon as the, the person is out, they completely change the room for somebody else? Okay, yes, I'm good with that. That's it. That works. Um, and actually, the serious answer is, in the meantime, I think there's going to be just uh, more shows from us, basically, right? Because we've got um, yes. uh, Premier League, La Liga, Bund- mm-hmm. Bundesliga's finished, right? La Liga's still going on. But Champions League is coming back, right? So more room to uh, for us to put our stuff in. We'll do what my parents did yeah. when I moved out. Just put more, <laughs> more of their stuff in my room. <laughs> Perfect. I'm all about storage. That works for me. But on a serious note, we are very excited for that to happen. Yes. Uh, they have done great work. They continue to do to do great work. So I'm excited to have them in their own feed where they will do both of those things uh, ongoing. Yeah, and we'll we'll still be involved, right? We talk mm-hmm. to Joe and Jordan a lot about like what's going on with the show and the yeah. content and they bounce ideas off of us. So it is it's a, they do most of the work, but it's it is a team effort. It's a I like to call it a total soccer show product, right? Because it's got mm-hmm. a stamp on it. It's the type of major league soccer show I would like us to do if we were 100% focused on major league yeah. soccer. So it's always that we managed to get someone else to do that for us. Absolutely brilliant. And now it's a show I can listen to, to learn all about Major League Soccer. And then pretend like I knew the stuff myself. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And if you haven't heard the most recent episode, which is available both in our feed and in the uh, MLS Assist solo feed, it's the last one that will be in both places at once. It's 10 very specific predictions about what will happen at the MLS's back tournament in Orlando in the Total Soccer Show tradition. There we are in the Total Soccer Show tradition. I'm excited for that. I'm excited for future shows from them. But for now, I'm very excited, strange as it may be for me to say, to talk Liverpool. Let's do it. (laughs) So we've already congratulated Liverpool on their Premier League win, their title Mm -hmm. win. We also put out that we wanted listener questions specifically about Liverpool and their Premier League title win to answer. And we got loads, Taylor. There are even some that Mm -hmm. came in after the cutoff. And we apologize to the people whose questions we can't answer. I haven't even counted them. I just know there's a lot of questions that we're going to answer today. And I'm ready to get going if you are. I am indeed. All right. So first question comes from Joey Jadlowski. And Joey wants to know, why is there an emphasis on this being Liverpool's first Premier League as opposed to their first title in 30 years? 
Is there a real distinction with the branding of the Premier League that makes it more valuable than the top flight title that Liverpool won in 1990? It seems like so many sources start the list of titles with the branding of the Premier League as opposed to all English top flight titles. Oh, the eternal English Premier League and top flight yeah. question, Taylor. Yes. I have an answer, yes, but yes, I'm yes. very interested to hear yours. Actually, I, I would, I'm happy for you to give your answer first because, I mean, you, you were, what, an early teens? The, almost, maybe not even a teenager when the Premier League started to exist. And I'm wondering if you remember, if it was a big difference then, if you do see it as a big difference from what came before. Oh, you're exactly right. I was either 12 or 13, so I was like a yeah. tween. Um, I know math. I, so it is different, right? Because it is a breakaway league, um, even though it's still connected via ProRail to the rest of the mm. Football League. It is a separate league to what used to go before as the English Football League First Division. So there is that. Um, but we still count like the, uh, the, the history of top mm-hmm. flight titles as one running total, right? But I would argue that the reason for um, noting it as the first Premier League win for Liverpool is that it really does mark a different era in English football. The Premier League is different to what went before Mm -hmm. it because there's so much money poured into it and so many players came from overseas, so many high-quality foreign players, the likes of which had never been in English football in that quantity before. So it actually does make sense to think of it as two different eras of English football. And it was really notable that this big team, this big, big team, Liverpool, had never won um, essentially, you could say they'd never won a title in the Premier League era, but that's just a long-winded way of saying they'd never won the Premier yeah. League because people often get um, savaged if they say never won the Premier League because then it looks like you're one of those people who pretends football didn't exist before 1992, right? So you yeah. don't want to do that, but it's also worth noting that the Premier League is a different era. Man, I forgot about how, the, like, I, not the money aspect, but the international player aspect. Because I remember uh, when I broke down the Anfield rap uh, when I was writing for the offside, your point was like, yeah, it was a big deal at the time that, like, they had two Scots on the team and a person from Denmark? What? Like, <laughs> so far, like, the far-flung reaches of the planet. They had an Australian, Daryl. And, like, and I, I forget that that was sort of, sort of a, a rarity versus yeah. nowadays that is not a thing at all. It would be, can... It's even stranger if there were Scots playing for, the, or, like, multiple Scottish players playing for Liverpool. Well, okay. The, the Scot- so Scottish, Welsh and Irish was not so weird because just mm-hmm. ge- geographically, obviously, those countries are all like very close to the English uh, top division, right? Mm-hmm. I bet I could name you the non, uh, non-British, non non-Irish players that were on that Liverpool team in 1990. And it's Bruce Grabala, who is from mm-hmm. Zimbabwe. It's probably Jan Mulby, who's from Denmark. The and, great Dean. And Glenn Hussein, who was from Sweden. I think Craig, Craig Johnson had definitely left at that point, right? Okay. They might have got Ronnie Rosenthal in on loan towards the end of the season, and he was from Israel. But that was it. Mm. So imagine that compared to what you see in a Premier League squad today. And mm. there's, I mean, there's, it's night and day. It's absolutely night and day. So it is a different era. And with, all due, and respect, with all due respect yeah. to those players, like those are not the best mm-hmm. players in the world. Um, no. It's not like now when you have, you know, Sergio Mane, Mohamed Salah and Roberto Firmino. Yeah, exactly. And I think you have those players because you have that money, but with the money comes competition. And I mean, there's no way you could have really envisioned in the late 80s, early 90s, like, oh, this Middle Eastern country is going to own this team and this Middle Eastern country might be buying this team. Like the amount of money that has flooded in is a thing that I don't think you ever could have seen coming at that point, certainly not in in the 80s. And so I think when you have that amount of money, it obviously increases the competition because you have to then spend yourself 
yourself and you have to try to stay relevant with those teams that do have that money. And so it becomes that much harder to win a title because you're going to have Chelsea spending, you're going to have Man City spending, you're going to have Man United uh, spending all the money. So how do you stay relevant? How do you stay competitive? It's a thing that Liverpool struggled with for a while and obviously do not struggle with as much nowadays. So do you feel like we've answered Joey's question? I think so. All right. I hope so. I guess we'll find out if if Joey responds. (laughs) I'm ready for the next one then, Tyler. All right, Andrew Cross. uh, Now that they have officially won the title, should Liverpool continue fielding a full-strength team to try to break the point total record, or should they mix backup and youth players into the lineup in order to avoid injuries and fatigue with a shortened offseason coming up? I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy set up here, right? Because I think what they could and should do is set a target of going for the uh, the point total record, which, by the way, is currently held by Man City, 100 points in 2017-18. And Liverpool are currently on 86 points with seven games to go, which I'm sure your calculator will tell you, Taylor, seven games is potentially 21 points, right? Mm-hmm. So they could only need 15 more points to break Man City's record. I would argue that Liverpool should set that as the goal, 101 points, so that they become the all-time leaders. But at the same time, you can you can mix in some some of the players who didn't get as many games, some of the players like Minamino that you were trying to sort of get settled in, some of the young players like Harvey Elliott and Nico Williams and Curtis Jones. Give them games, but don't feel like like massively weakened teams. Just like you know, mix a few players in, give Mohamed Salah a rest here and there. Does that make sense? It does. I mostly agree, except that I have never been a person who cared about that sort of title i feel like if you've won the title then you've won the title if you break the points record that's i guess that's extra bragging rights but genuinely i don't think it's a thing that like if man united ever did that i'd be like ah but the most points ever like it's just not a thing i would care about as much i would care about the individual results and like the big games where they embarrass the opposition i will say stand out more to me teams do do this though i heard a thing about uh chris wilder sheffield Mm -hmm. united manager when they'd won uh league one the third tier um, he set them a target of we've got to reach 100 points, right? Mm-hmm. We've got to reach 100 points this season, I think, to just keep the players motivated through, through the end of the season so that there wasn't a drop-off that then potentially could carry over into the next season. I also know when Wolves won the championship under Nuno, they set that target and only got to 99 because somehow that Sunderland from the Sunderland Till I Die documentary, that Sunderland team beat Wolves on the last day of the season. So it is, it, is a, it is a target that coaches set just to set a goal, right? Basically just to make sure that there's something to play for. But at the same time, and I, I absolutely agree with you, right? That say, for example... Say if like, it comes to the last game of the season and Liverpool would have to win that game to reach 101 points, you wouldn't ask Mohamed Salah to take a painkilling injection in his ankle no. to play in that no. game. Whereas if it was we have to win this game to win the mm-hmm. league, you might he might be persuaded, right? So it, it yeah. can be a target without a, we'll sacrifice everything for this kind of target. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think, honestly, Dara, I think you've just swayed me with that point. Because what we do often hear about a team that wins the title is how hard it is to then get back up for the start of next season. Maybe it will be a little bit easier because you don't have that massive break over the summer where we would have had a World Cup, or excuse me, we would have had the Euros, and that would have certainly been a distraction. And does everybody come back really, really ready to go? This time around, like you, if you do slack off and you play younger players and you give everybody some breaks, like there is that risk of then you're suddenly immediately into preseason and are you able to elevate that game accordingly? I think the Sheffield United analogy therefore makes sense that you kind of set a goal so that people stay hungry, stay working towards a goal, and then by the time you've achieved it or maybe fallen a little bit short, you're still in a fighting position to begin the next season on the right foot. So I think that does make a lot of sense. I do also think, though, to your point, that given 
the duration of this season, the weirdness of this season, and what that might mean for the weirdness of next season, you are going to want a little bit more variety and a little bit more depth. So I think you're right that you set that goal, but you don't prioritize that above all else. And you make sure, yeah, like Curtis Jones gets minutes so he feels a bit more comfortable and maybe fans feel more comfortable with him deputizing if somebody gets injured. And also, what would be the point of giving Curtis Jones minutes if you're just sending him out and saying, this game doesn't matter, just go and have a kickabout, right? It's much better to give Curtis Jones minutes and say, here's the target, we're going for 101 points like it gives mm-hmm. it gives the whole squad something to play for i also i looked up who needs appearances to get a premier league winner's medal oh, that's a good point dude so five appearances is what you need yeah. um even guys like shakiri have already broken that right but the aforementioned curtis jones and harvey elliott both have two premier league appearances so if they make mm. three more appearances over the next seven games they will get premier league winners medals so don't be surprised if they make those three appearances i would not be and this fact is a lot of these questions are going to sort of bleed into another and we'll be going back to reference them later on in the show this would be one i think knowing what what we know about jurgen klopp and the way he sort of has bought into liverpool I wouldn't be surprised if they get those those uh, appearances very quickly to ensure that they get those Premier League winners. Yes, yeah. and then I think Minamino is the big project, right? Because he's mm-hmm. the the player they spent money on to be an addition to the front three and maybe maybe the midfield. And you've got to say it hasn't he hasn't quite looked like he's working out yet. Um, but I think right. that he's more of a long term investment, right? So Are these, you doing this on purpose? These would be the games to uh, to bed him in. No way. Because the next question comes from Jonathan Messenger. Where does Minamino fit into this squad? Man, sometimes, Taylor, when you've been doing a job a long time, you just you just do it naturally. I was waiting for you to be like, which leads to the next question. <laughs> Where does Minamino fit into this squad? All right, mm. so... Would you like would you like former co-host Albert's answer? Because uh, I outsourced this one to him. Yeah, what did, what did Albert say to you? Uh, I, first of all, I will say he has been incredibly sufferable since Liverpool won the title, <laughs> which I wasn't sure was going to be the case. So credit to Albert for that. Credit to Albert for three quick answers. Um, he noted uh, that it's possible he was purchased with an eye towards the African Cup of Nations, which has now been postponed to 2022, which still be in Cameroon, we expect. Uh, Albert's, so Al- that- Albert's wrong. Minamino's Japanese, so he can't play in the African Cup of Nations. Yeah, yes, I know that, Daryl. I mean that uh, with the players leaving, he might get some more minutes. I like, uh, I, just like one thing. An- I like annoying Albert by proxy. Yeah, well, you've <laughs> you've annoyed us both. So well done, sir. Uh, I think uh, the other two points would be: it's very likely that some combination of Shakiri, Origi, and Lalana will leave. Maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, which means there will be uh, less competition for substitute and reserve minutes and opportunities there. And then you do have the age consideration when it comes to that front three. Salah just turned twenty-eight in June. Firmino turns twenty-nine in October. Mane turned twenty-eight in April. They've all had a full season behind them. Uh, Salah has had some injuries in the past, and everybody picks up injuries here and there so i think those are three ways in in which minamino i think are reasons why he will eventually fit into that squad so i wonder what jonathan is asking is he asking like what's the strongest position because i think in a weird way that might be the wrong question because i think the way that minamino fits in at least from what we've seen so far is that he can kind of slot into multiple different roles, right? Like he can play Mane's position on the left, Salah's position on the right. I would argue he doesn't have the explosiveness, either of those. Jesse Marsh, I saw Jesse Marsh, his former coach at RB Salzburg, say that he'd be best in the Firmino position because Minamino is really a sort of playmaking number 10 type player. And that's what I saw at Salzburg in the couple of games that I watched Minamino play. But really, when you look at what Firmino does for Liverpool, he doesn't famously does not stand 
on the centre back like a centre forward. He comes deep and plays plays almost like a more attacking midfielder role with Salah and Mane um, ahead of him. So it may be that um, Minamino is the Firmino, which makes him sound like a mini Firmino. Um, <laughs> uh, not replacement, but um, at least supplement, right? For when uh, for just when Firmino Firmino can't play every single game. I also mm-hmm. saw quotes from Klopp that Minamino can also play in the number eight position, which is essentially any of the three centre midfield spots except the central central one, right? So yeah. more like essentially where Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's been been playing. So that versatility means you might not ever see him fixed in an exact position. You'll see him fill in in a lot of different positions. Like we see Divac Origi play left, mm-hmm. centre and right, right? And it's been really helpful. Minamino might be like like that, but even more versatile. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's worth remembering, I mean, he signed this January, correct? I yes. just want to make sure I'm right on that one. Right. Yeah. So then he signs in January. Usually January signings take a little bit of time to bet. And sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's even a year. And for him to get a couple months and then have the kind of lockdown for a while, we have the suspension of play. It stands to reason that it's difficult to then sort of get up to speed really quickly when you already have these sort of delays uh, in your development and in the uh, the actual just play itself. So maybe with another preseason and some time with the team, I think then we see him get established in a few more specific positions maybe he stays sort of a jack of all trades and that's what they need him to be uh but i could see either thing happening and i think his versatility is where he fits into the squad and maybe the uh, the gist of the answer and that has been one of the strengths of liverpool this season right is there are so many right. players who are not guaranteed starters when you write down liverpool starting 11 and really high high quality players like james milner um, or divak Origi are absolutely not starters adam lalana not nabi Keita, none of them have sort of caused trouble or being unhappy. And I think the more of those types of players you can have who can fill multiple positions and aren't going to cause a stink if they don't start, then the more likely you are to be successful. It's like the Alex Ferguson model, basically, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of players who fit that sort of description um, for Alex Ferguson when Manchester United are at their best. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think they've uh they've got a good signing there and I think that would make sense. They do have the summer to uh to get ready for this season in that they have what like two weeks to get ready for the start of next season. So I mean we don't have a date. Work on right? the- we don't have a date. Yeah. But I see where you're going with this, Taylor. I see where you're that going. That they could work on their summer bods, Daryl? They sure could. I'm not sure professional soccer players need to work on their summer <laughs> oh, no? bods. Uh uh-uh. uh. You don't think so? And I would bet that they're already pretty scaped. But if you're not if you're not <laughs> scaped and you're ready to reveal your summer bod, Manscaped is here to ensure your post quarantine body is ready for the wild. Don't be the guy at the beach with a bear rug on your chest. I, I, I feel attacked. Dude, I I rode my bike uh, the other day to uh, uh, to a thing in Richmond. And about halfway there, I was like, am I dying? And then I just realized <laughs> I've done nothing. So maybe I'm in that category. But I also am definitely in the category that there was a moment when I looked at myself in the mirror. And I was like, oh, so I've just gone feral. That's not good. <laughs> uh, and you don't want that to be the case. And that's where Manscaped uh, can help you out. They have, for example, the Perfect Package 3.0 kit, which comes with the essential lawnmower 3.0 that syncs up yep. uh waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine so manscaped say this is the best trimmer on the market it's the best one i've tried uh, for those of you in need of a chest shave the third generation trimmer features skin safe technology to reduce manscaping accidents i do it seems that manscaped have extended the definition of what needs to be scaped in the, in this new copy yeah because they're uh, pointing out that you don't want to give yourself an accidental nipple piercing. I, I don't know how you would be shaving that you would accidentally pierce your nipple, but maybe it's happened to somebody at Manscaped and that's why they've thrown it into the copy points. Yeah, I mean, I assume it happened with a um, a different piece of technology than the, uh, the lawnmower 3.0. 
Yeah, and I'm picturing it now, and I don't want to picture it nope. anymore. So instead, nope. I just want to move on to uh, let our listeners know that if they want to check out what Manscaped have on offer, they can do so by going to manscaped.com. And if they like what they see and want to try it for themselves, they can get 20% off with free shipping by using the code TSS20. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using the code TSS20. All right, Manscaped, keep yourself scaped. Um, yes, I, li- I like that. I like that catchphrase, Daryl. Well done, sir. <laughs> Next question comes mm-hmm. from Raghav Gupta. And Raghav actually has two questions for us because they were mm-hmm. both good, so we included two. Um, first one from Raghav is, who was the unsung hero of Liverpool's title? So this it's is, tough, right? I think... It's an exceptionally hard question because so many players on this team have gotten a lot of credit and yes. a lot of attention. It's a very so sung team. Yes. I'm going to spotlight two, like one sort of position group and one player. Okay. Uh, not to say that Allison has been unsung, but I was going to try to argue that it was Adrian because he comes in and deputizes when Allison misses basically two months at the start of the season. Oh, you obviously, don't watch, games. you obviously don't watch the Champions League. I see that's the thing. I was trying to avoid the Champions League. But then basically in trying to make the argument for Adrian, I ended up just reminding myself how good Alisson is. Because <laughs> even just from a statistics standpoint, Adrian allowed uh, 1.03 goals per game uh, for 90 minutes in the Premier League with a 64% save percentage. Alisson had 0.52 goals and an 81% save percentage. And is yeah. also way better with his feet. So I think it's sort of because Liverpool have Van Dyke and they have Chan Alexander-Arnold and they have Andy Robertson and they have the attack they have, it, you don't necessarily ever overlook Allison, especially not with the price tag that he commanded. But it is easy to sort of forget that he is incredibly good and it's not just that there's an amazing team ahead of him. Uh, so I think like he maybe flew under the radar, at least a little bit for me. And then based on some of the questions we got, I oh, would argue we, that maybe... Before you before you move on, I want to just offer my praise of Alisson because I, sure, sure, sure. I went and took a... I wanted to... I thought he'd come up, right? So I wanted to remind myself. So I went and watched like a lot of Alisson highlights to get a, a reminder of what type of keeper he was. And I kept seeing him come off his line and do this thing where he sort of crouches a little bit to cover the low spaces so he can't be shot past but still somehow stayed big so he's got this like really weird technique where he gets down low and stays big at the same time and then he seems to have this perfect timing of when to come out start closing the angle and when to pounce right when mm-hmm. to uh to just pounce at the guy with the ball and swat it away so i really noticed in, in like one-on-one situations allison has been absolutely magnificent and i'm sure you you mentioned um his distribution right um i i saw a lot of long throws that would you know set someone away down the wing and some nice um like slice kicks that would go especially quite often down the left to andy robertson when andy robertson had like taken off so he would launch counter attacks with big throws and really really well aimed passes so yeah i think you're right that maybe allison does go under the radar because Liverpool, we don't focus on the goalkeeping so much, basically. No, and I think if you're a Liverpool fan, certainly you haven't forgotten about uh, about the things I'm about to mention. But if you're more of a neutral, more of a casual, you sort of forget the days before Alisson where they have Lothar Karius and what happens there in the Champions League where there's Simon Mignolet, who we keep expecting is going to be this world beater and never really quite gets to that level. So remembering them and then seeing who they have in goal now, I think it makes them look that much better by comparison. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was one nominee for me. I wouldn't say like being one of the most expensive goalkeepers in the world. I can't remember if he still is, uh, but being up there 
is makes it difficult for you to go under the radar. But based on some of the questions we got, the other thing I was going to say was maybe just that midfield three, because I think the defense gets a lot of credit, the attack gets a lot of credit, and it's therefore sometimes easy to overlook and just think like, oh yeah, that midfield's fine, but it's the attack and the defense that really saved the day for them. Whereas I think that midfield is incredibly good. Yeah, so we we do have a question later, right? Which allows us to dig mm-hmm. deeper into how that midfield works. But I would um, agree with you that it's sort of like there's a lot of focus on the front three and a lot of focus on the fullbacks and a lot of focus on Van Dijk. And then it's not like anyone says Liverpool's midfield is bad or any of the players in it are bad, but maybe, um, yeah, like everything essentially revolves around them. And I, I would argue that what they do lets everybody else look good. Yeah, I would agree with that. Can All I right. take a guess as to who your nominee is going to be? Uh, yeah, go for it. Is it Hamas Milner? It is not. It is not. Because oh, I feel like okay. he is he is properly sung, right? He gets quite he gets quite so. a lot of credit, I think. Okay. I've gone with Divock Origi. Yeah, that's fair. So if you had to guess how many appearances in the Premier League Divock Origi had made this season, that's you know, starting and coming off the bench, how many appearances would you guess he's made? See, this is one of those questions. I I probably would have gone lower. I probably would have said so, like twenty two. Twenty three. Twenty three. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow, okay. So right. out of 31 games so so far, he's appeared in 23, <laughs> which I think it's worth it's worth knowing. That's a majority, right? He's played. Are in you are you aware games. that I forgot that we've only played 31 games? Sorry to interrupt. That was, that was 100 percent me thinking we've we've had a full season. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you slightly <laughs> underestimated. 22. There we go. You unsung yeah. him. You unsung him. So, I did. I so, did. So far, he's appeared in 23 of 31 games. Right. Not for that many minutes. Right. He's only played 541 mm-hmm. minutes, which breaks down to I believe 23 and a half minutes uh, mm-hmm. per game. But I would argue that because he has filled in across the front three, right? So uh, Mane, Salah, Firmino, he's given them breaks at the end of games. He has replaced them when they couldn't start. Like he, uh, um, I think the first game of the season, he started on the left instead of Sergio Mane. I know that because he scored in that game. Um, I actually think he's been a crucial part of there not being a gap in Liverpool's front three, um, essentially. But because the other yeah. three are so famous... They're the ones that get sung about, whereas Divock Origi has been there backing them up, giving them rest the whole season. And crucially, again, not complaining about it, being happy to be part of a title winning team. What do you think it would take for Divock Origi to like, not to say that he's like a punchline or anything approximating that, but that he is just very clearly below that front three. If that front three is fit, they're always going to be the starters. What would it take, do you think, for him to move up to that level? Or is it sort of impossible until somebody is either like injured for a prolonged period of time or moves on to a different club? Yeah, I think it would have to be that someone was out for a long time and he just hit such hot form while he was replacing them mm-hmm. that they had to win their place back from him. Right. Okay. So, yeah. but he, I don't think he's ever had that really long extended run in the team. So he may he may never get that chance. He may not. He may not. And yeah. as Albert suggested, he could also be one who moves on in search of more consistent uh, minutes, that, if not uh, starts. Has that been reported, or is that just Albert speculating? I think Albert's speculating. All right. I mean, I it really seems happy to me. So I, if I was him, I'd I'd stick with it, especially with yeah. possibly an Africa Cup of Nations coming up. Uh, we don't also know that. what the international schedule is going to look like, right? But uh, Mane and Salah would presumably both be going to that. Which Daryl uh, Divakarigi is not from Africa, just so you know. <laughs> I see what you did. You turned it around on me. You turned it around on me. Um, so yeah, so Origi could could get some games while that while that's going on. Um, I right. also I also would say uh, Jojo Wijnaldum. Because we mm. never really talk about him, but he's always just there being consistently really, really good. 
Yeah, I, that's probably fair. Again, that goes to that midfield point, though, I think, for me, that, like, it's easy to overlook that midfield, whereas they're just consistently yeah. very, very good, but maybe not getting the headlines. Yeah. I feel like they get the, like, statistician headlines of, like, Ronaldo has covered more distance and completed more passes than anybody else, and it's like, uh-huh, yes. did he score a hat-trick? Well, then we're posting that. <laughs> more on Giorgio when we talk about Liverpool's midfield later. Um, All right. Are you ready for, like, I've got to second question? Mm-hmm. This is even tougher. Who is Liverpool's most improved player this season. I'll tell you what I did, That's Taylor. Interesting. I went straight to Trent Alexander-Arnold because I thought 12 assists uh-huh. this year. That's incredible. I'm going to go back and see how many he had last season. 12 assists last season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, I, my, my answer is Manchester City. <laughs> <laughs> the, and I, I'm joking, but essentially Liverpool have been basically as brilliant this year as they were last year. It's just mm-hmm. that Man City were one point more brilliant last year and this year they weren't. Yeah. So you're saying their most improved player at Liverpool has been Man City being not improved? Yeah, maybe Rodri. Right. Maybe Rodri's the answer. <laughs> um, for me, I think the answer is Fabinho. That, that's what I, would, I yes. would go with because that's a player who struggled to sort of make an impact at first. And there were those stories about like, is this a, a miss? Is he not going to gel with the team? Is he not going to get the Premier League? And instead, he has been just consistently very good when he was out it became that much more telling how important he was because they did not necessarily struggle. Liverpool have not struggled this season, but they just didn't look as strong, as fluid, as consistent with him in there. And then also because of what he's done and how well he has, has played, it has also freed up Jordan Henderson and Wijnaldum a little bit to, to sort of do other tasks, to develop their game a bit more, to not just do sort of stay-at-home central jobs. That has been Fabinho. Think, Fabinho also helping with the transition to attack. So for all those reasons, I say Fabinho most improved. I think especially Jordan Henderson, right? Because Fabinho is... Yeah. Is playing that number six central midfield pivot position that Henderson was playing. And it's freed up Jordan Henderson to go and do what he prefers doing, which is that like right center mid job where he can get get up and down and get more more involved in the attack. Um, so I think, yeah, Fabinho's emergence as a sort of distributive midfielder. And honestly, he's better at it than Jordan Henderson, right? He can pick out passes slight and control the game, control the tempo a little bit more than Jordan Henderson can. So that might be, that's a really good shout. And I... I, in hindsight, really admire the job that Jurgen Klopp did, just being nice and patient yep. with Fabinho that first season. Like, we barely barely saw him, right, for the first like half of the first season um, and slowly saw him come into his own in the second half of last season. Um, that And weirdly, the Fabinho experience is what gives me optimism that Minamino will work out in the end uh, despite a not great start to, like in terms yeah. of uh, performances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you've got to have that, like... It can't just always be like every player comes in and immediately performs. Otherwise, they're on their way out. You've got to kind of establish that there can be a grace period and there will be a learning curve. And it doesn't mean that you're out of the team completely if you don't play regularly in the first three months or six months or what have you. So I had Fabinho. I did have an honorable mention that I thought you maybe would enjoy. I'm wondering what you think, because I would say honorable mention goes to Joe Gomez for me. Oh, interesting. I, I feel like he was kind of um, he had moments of just being incredible last mm-hmm. season and moments of being a the the occasionally shaky link this season like when he got pushed over yeah. against Watford I think but like in looking at that starting 11 like he is I mean just by how good everybody else is he is sort of the weak link and it always seems like yeah it's Virgil van Dijk and then is it Lovren is it Matip is it uh Joe Gomez is it going to be Fabinho dropping in to be a center back and and I think that is always sort of the quote-unquote weak point and that I think he made that look like less of a vulnerability in my experience of watching Liverpool in my opinion I think that's why I had him as honorable mention but I think it's still it's not as though it was leaps and bounds the way I feel like it was for Fabinho I think actually the real answer is Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain because he was injured almost all of last season 
There you go. Loophole answer. <laughs> La- I like it. Last year he couldn't even walk. This year, this year he's running up and down and being a really important part of Liverpool's attack. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> any other uh, improved players you want to mention? Uh, I mean, I think honestly everybody probably did improve yeah. a little bit, but we're talking about margins, right? We're talking about yes. margins. Margins, indeed. <laughs> uh, is it my turn to ask a question or your turn? I think I think it's your turn. All right. Guy Edwab, what changes has Liverpool made off the field to get back to title-winning ways? Ooh, this is interesting. Um, not Nothing specific that I found for this season, but more like this yeah. is like a general thing of the Klopp yeah. era. Did you find the same Guardian article that I found? Uh, I, I don't know. Is it about Klopp? Uh, no, it's about his backroom staff, essentially. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. I found a, a Guardian article that essentially talked about the new Liverpool boot room. So if people aren't mm-hmm. familiar with this, the old tradition at Liverpool was the boot room, which really was like a little room, um, like in the down the tunnel near the changing rooms, where all the staff used to meet and like plot out what Liverpool were going to do next. Um, the boot room got demolished sometime in the 90s to make room for a bigger uh, press press room or press conference area. Um, but there's this like phrase at Liverpool about the boot room essentially meaning the backroom staff, the people that you don't hear much about, but are contributing in massive ways, right? So according to this Guardian article, which I'll put in the show notes, there's a new Liverpool boot room, but it's very 21st century Jurgen Kloppy. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So quick run through of these additions. Um, according to this Guardian article, um, Peter Kravitz, uh, K-A-K-R-A-W-E. ITZ, maybe Kravich, um, is the video analysis and opposition preparation guy. And he's been everywhere with Jurgen Klopp, from Mainz to Dortmund to Liverpool. Um, Klopp says that even now, I am still amazed at the things he spots during a game. He's always been essential to me. So uh, Kravich is a guy that behind the scenes is spotting things on video, essentially, that Klopp is not spotting. So he has to be important, right? All right. Who, who else is in there? Um, maybe the biggest one is Pepin Linders, who's an assistant coach. Um, he predated Klopp at Liverpool. He left for an Eredivisie job, got fired. Uh, Klopp asked him to come back. And apparently it was Linders and Krevich that after the 2018 Champions League final um, worked with Klopp to change Liverpool's playing style. Now, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but there definitely is a difference between what Liverpool were doing up until the end of the 2017-18 season and what they've done this season and last season. So starting with 2018-19. This is kind of a big topic, so I can save this for later if you want. I think save it for later because I think the question was more about off the field stuff. Yes. Okay. All right. Which I feel like like, that's a little bit playing style. All right. So here's here's the the one the one two other big ones. Uh, Mona Mm -hmm. Nema is a full time nutritionist who uh, designs the meal plans for the players. Um, Liverpool used to have part time advisors. Mona Nema is now full time. She is constantly thinking about um, what these players are going to eat. She would not design a sandwich like the one Omar Gonzalez had to eat. She would not. She absolutely. <laughs> I, I can say that with some confidence. She yeah. absolutely would not. Um, there's um, the drill sergeant fitness coach, Andreas Kronmeier, who Klopp tent, uh, tempted away from Bayern Munich. And there's Thomas Gronemark, uh, the famous uh, throwing coach, who isn't a full-time staff uh, person, but he does come in. He works with Ajax and Michelin as well. He comes in and works on throw-ins with Liverpool players, which was kind of you mock- make a W, Daryl. Uh, well, yeah, so it was, it was kind of mocked by some of the uh, some of the yeah. British press. But I read a couple of things like Granamark talking about the type of thing he does, and it it made me realize that like there's like a throwing is like a pass, right? Like if you coach passing technique, a player gets better at like playing a pass into space for someone to run onto. What if no one's ever taught you to do that properly from a throwing? 
You know what I'm saying? Like, so it is yeah. a really important thing to learn proper throwing technique, how to recognize space, when to release the ball, how to like fake it and then go the other way. Like there's a whole thing to throw ins that maybe was overlooked in soccer and Liverpool have added to their game. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So, and that is in keeping with what I've heard about Jurgen Klopp sort of embracing the philosophy of Liverpool, the philosophy of the city as well. So like keeping people that have the experience that have the familiarity that do important backroom jobs, but maybe would be easy to overlook and yeah. sort of get rid of and bring in other people. But then you sort of change the the vibe, the atmosphere of the, the team. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's definitely a great answer. It's like the 21st century, like uh, maybe Bundesliga inspired equivalent of what used to happen at Liverpool in the seventies, that is the nineties when it was just like five, ex-pros who are on the coaching staff sitting in the boot room smoking Mm -hmm. and having a cup of tea and talking about what to do next (laughs) but instead now it's nutritionists and throwing coaches and uh, these really sort of advanced video analysis type things that makes sense to me i went a a little bit further back than you did uh from my answer uh if you'll if you'll permit me because i would say fenway sports group taking over is a massive thing in terms of where liverpool are now even if they took over a decade ago because again it's easy to forget how dysfunctional that club was under Hicks and Gillette and how bad things had gotten. And we've seen it happen where a, a, a big team get like sells to an owner, a new ownership group who come in and have to kind of figure it out or in Sunderland's case, not figure it out. Uh, but in this case, you have basically new owners who already know how to win and already know how to run a successful sports franchise. And they do just that. I mean, they buy Liverpool for 300 million. The team is now valued at 1.7 billion, according to Forbes. So a decent return on the investment, but they aren't afraid to make changes. And so they immediately sacrifice and they bring back Kenny DeGleese. Then they bring in Brendan Rogers to be a bit more like proactive, progressive in his approach when it's clear that that's not going to get them to that next level. Then we have Jurgen Klopp. And I think that hire obviously speaks for itself. But away from that, you have uh, in 2014, there's a $114 million expansion to Anfield's main stand. They've put $50 million into the training base. They've announced they're going to expand the stadium capacity to 60000 All of these, I think, obviously bring in more money that they can then invest in players. But it also gets a bigger atmosphere. More people singing You'll Never Walk Alone prior to a game <laughs> is a thing that if you're bringing in a potential new signing and they see that with 60,000 people belting it out, I think you're like 10% more likely to sign for Liverpool. So I think they've sort of created an atmosphere of we're going to win and we're going to do it like the right way, quote unquote, if that makes sense. Uh, And I think that that does appeal and sort of makes Liverpool an even more attractive destination than it might otherwise have been. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I feel like there's a lot of reflected glory from Klopp to Fenway Sports Group, Mm -hmm. right? And I feel like it's... I mean, but they put him there, I guess, is where I am. Yeah, that's the one one big decision they really got right was to go all in on Jurgen Klopp, right? Because he was hot property, when he when he left Dortmund. So I think the main thing was just signing signing Jurgen Klopp. But before mm-hmm. that, like some of the transfers were not not brilliant, right? There was a lot of uh, yes. a lot of uh, transfer business that was not ideal. Um so we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I think a lot a lot of the stuff that's gone really well has coincided with Jurgen Klopp taking charge. I yep. would make the argument that the changes Klopp has made to all the backroom staff and all that is mm-hmm. really the most important off the field changes that have helped Liverpool win the title. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm not trying to like argue semantics here. I think it's just a different perspective on there are other ownership groups that would be like, no, we want to control this. We want more say in that we need a marketable star from this market. So like, who do you want for that place for one of these four national teams? Who's going to sell the most jerseys? I do think there are ownership groups that are like that. And I think it's a credit to FSG that they, to some extent, at least in my experience, have sort of taken, taken a backseat and let Jurgen Klopp do what he wants and spend the money he needs to spend to get the players he needs to have the success they've had. 
Should we move on then to the next question? Mark yeah, Counterman, why can other teams not replicate the style of play um, as well as Liverpool? The answer is Jurgen Klopp. And <laughs> we can keep talking about him here, but that is <laughs> my my answer. And I think it starts with him taking over. This is maybe this is where I go with it, and I feel like you you might be less inclined to to agree with me on this one. But I feel like the hiring I'll, of Jurgen Klopp it. happens. I'll allow it. Thank you, sir. I think it happens at the precise right moment that Liverpool still a really big team with the history they have. They have that appeal. They're a, a globally known organization, but it's not as though he is coming in and taking over a team with a bunch of star players who Lionel Messi is not going to gag and press. He's not going to cover every blade of grass. And I think it's sort of he comes in, he brings the experience. Whoa, he does. Hang on, hang point, on, hang on. Lionel he, Messi did gag and press for a long time under Guardiola. Right. There's a big thing where the thing of like winning the ball back within six seconds after losing it was a huge part of Guardiola's Barcelona. So Leo Messi, because just to give Messi it, I would the credit. Argue it's I, you can give him the credit. I would argue it's because it's Pep and it's because it's Barcelona. I mean, look at the way Barcelona is now when non-Pep coaches ask him to do something. I mean, he literally walked away from his assistant coach twice this weekend because he didn't feel All like right, okay, okay. So I think that's where I'm going with. But my point is simply that I think Jurgen Klopp comes in at the exact right moment to get all of these players to buy into what he's asking and then continues to do it. And he sticks with the style. It's We're not seeing, sometimes it's a 4-3-3, sometimes it's a back three, sometimes it's this, it's this, it's this. Like Pep tinkers, Klopp sticks with it and gets his players to buy into the system. And because of that, you have this incredible familiarity. And it is the case that these players are world-class and incredibly good, but it's also... I'm not sure where we are with Malcolm Gladwell, but it does have that 10,000 hours vibe to it of if you have a person drill and drill and play the same style for 10,000 hours, they're going to get really good at it or they're going to get sold. And I think that's a big part of why teams can't do that because you don't have the consistency in terms of the manager being there in the first place. But then in terms of the manager's philosophy and style, it's not always as consistent. And so it can be a little bit harder to get everybody on the same page. So I agree with like, 80% of what you just said, right? That it is about Jurgen Klopp. It's about Jurgen Klopp getting everybody to buy in and be on the same page. Um, I I think the 20% I disagree with is mostly a thing I disagree with in Mark's question. And I think Mm. it's an assumption that a lot of people have about Liverpool that it's just one style of play, right? Mm. That it's just, for example, the heavy metal football, Gagan Press thing that Klopp was talking about when he came from Dortmund and when he started at Liverpool. Um, I think there's been an evolution, like starting about two years ago, Um, with Liverpool, that their style of play is now really multifaceted, right? It's more than one thing. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, they are absolutely brilliant at the um, gag and press, which means when you're getting counter-attacked on, you press the team and you win the ball back as the other team's about to counter, right? They're great at that. They're great at when they want to, hunting in packs and closing space down and winning the Mm -hmm. ball back. But a big thing they added starting two years ago is what some people call the positional press, right? Which is if you watch Liverpool, um, when the other team is like building the ball out of the back, they don't all go charging and try and win the ball back all the time because it's exhausting, right? That's the the conclusion they came to at the end of 2018 was like, this is just impossible to do all the time. If you look at the positional press Liverpool do now, it's the most impressive thing about them. And just to give you a quick example of what I'm talking about, it's about closing down passing lanes um, so that teams can't go anywhere, right? So you'll see Firmino, he will, if the opposition centre-backs have the ball, he'll stand in front of the opposition centre-backs and he'll sort of split them and he'll be able to block the passing lane into the opposition central midfielder. So Firmino is absolutely brilliant at like taking out three people at once and like meaning that you don't have to commit more men forward to that. And then on the two wings, you've got Salah and Mane are both 
blocking the passes out to the fullbacks without going and marking them. They're just constantly moving to make sure that there's no angle for that pass ever. So they can stay central, but also block out wide. So they've managed to come up with this system where you can close down space all the time without having to charge around like a crazy person playing heavy metal all the time, right? So it's like they learned a new song, essentially. <laughs> they yeah. learned a new song well, I think- for the start of uh, 2018. I think, well, if, if we extend that analogy further, like, yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it is that like they learned a new song that was a sort of natural evolution of their style. Yeah. It wasn't like we were heavy metal, but now we're going to be quiet folk. Yes. Like it sort of is as teams adjust to what they're doing, there's a natural evolution to it that doesn't. And I think this is, I guess what I was trying to stress is that it doesn't feel like tinkering. It's not like, hey, you know what? We're going to try sitting in and counterattacking and see what happens there. Like there's not this sort of drastic change to anything. It all feels like logical adjustments based yeah. on what other teams are doing or more maybe more specifically to try to stay ahead of what other teams are doing to deal with Liverpool. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the heavy metal is still there if they need to play it, right? If they need Certainly. to like turn up the volume and blast it out, they can still do yeah. it. But to answer Mark's question, I think that's one of the reasons why other teams can't replicate the style of play as well as Liverpool. It's because mm-hmm. it's not just one thing, right? It's multiple different things that they've learned to do to a very high standard and they can switch into any of these things, positional press, gagging press or hunting impacts um, at any time that they need uh, during the game and then mm-hmm. the other thing they've become great at is uh building out from the back in possession and breaking down teams even when they have lots of lots of numbers behind the ball and they've worked out lots of little systems right like the, the real obvious one is on the left side andy robertson the left back goes high and wide uh, uh Sergio Mane comes inside to almost be an extra striker and you'll see Giorgio Wijnaldum like drop into like a left centre mid, almost left back position, like the flip side of what Pogba was doing for France at the 2018 uh, World Cup. So it's not easy to just get three players to be so on the same page that they they all understand that entire system, right? So that's why other teams can't replicate the style of play as well as Liverpool. Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. Uh, and then my final note would then be, it does also come down to, I think, the timeline he has. That if you're... I don't know, Jesse Marsh, and you want to implement your philosophy and you're coming in, you're coming into a new team. You've got to kind of get everybody on board, but then you've got to customize the squad accordingly. So could a Jesse Marsh coached Bournemouth get to, probably not even get to Liverpool's level because they're not going to have that money, but like they could buy into the style and system, but it's going to take a while. Jurgen Klopp, I don't know if he where he is on the list. I think he is top three longest tenured coaches in the Premier League. Sean Dyche is up there too, and I think that explains Burnley's success. And I think that he's been able to mold the team into the identity he wants so that now when he buys a player, they know what they're getting into. And it's not sort of, hey, we're buying James Rodriguez or uh, some like marquee player Neymar just because we need a big name player. Every player they're buying fits with what they're trying to do. Yeah, no one else seemed to be looking at Minamino as seriously as Liverpool, right? Mm. They looked at him because they knew that he would fit. All right, Taylor, we have a lot more questions and we only have 30 minutes to go. So let's let's keep on moving, right? Jared S. asks, Mm -hmm. how dependent are Liverpool's tactics, which is basically what we've just talked about, on the unique attributes of its key players? For example, Trent Alexander-Arnold's passing, Firmino's unselfishness, Mane's engine. Um, Asked another way, are Liverpool's tactics replicable for other elite clubs? So I think those are kind of two different questions, to be honest. Okay. Um, and I, I asked uh, my friend Trey, who is also a big Liverpool fan, uh, and he he felt like it was maybe the other way around, that it's the attributes that are incorporated into the style of play and that then accentuates them. But it's not that like those attribu- attributes are so good. Like 
Roberto Firmino probably could be a better finisher. Mohamed Salah, when he first signs, could be a better finisher. He's not as efficient as maybe he needed to be. And so you adjust the way you're playing to fit those vulnerabilities. And then in a lot of cases, because you're sort of not asking a player to compensate for their vulnerabilities, they look that much better because they're doing the thing that comes naturally. Um, And I think that, again, speaks to the longevity of Klopp, that he kind of customizes to fit the individual vulnerabilities to make them strengths. And with that in mind... I mean, yes, other teams could replicate the tactics to some extent, but it requires a lot of time and effort and training and energy and awareness of how best to get those tactics and that style implemented. So they could. I don't think it's going to be as successful and certainly not uh, in the next season or two. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue it takes specific players. Like the When I was talking about how they do the positional press and like mm-hmm. so Mane and Salah are blocking those passes to the fullbacks and then also being world-class attackers when they get the ball, how many players have both of those skill sets, right? The ability to like... Mm-hmm. Be, be willing to do that defensive job, to know how to do that defensive job and essentially do all that geometry on the fly um, and be really threatening when you get the ball. How many centre forwards are there like Firmino, right? There's a, a guy who is willing, like prefers to come back and connect play rather than be an actual centre forward and a guy who is so good at, again, knowing the angles and knowing how to um, knowing how to press, knowing how to do the positional press. So I don't think you could just go into a, a, a team that has, quote, elite players. Like, say, Neymar. and <laughs> Say if it was Neymar, Ronaldo, and some other elite player, they're not going to learn all those angles and do all that stuff, right? So it, no. that's why it's not, exactly. it's not transferable to just another elite club unless they started building a team to, with players that can play the system slowly but surely, like Klopp did. Yeah, because, I mean, you contrast what he's done with Liverpool with, like, say, Thomas Tuchel at PSG, who did have a a roughly similar style when he was at Dortmund and then has had to change it to a massive extent because of the players and personalities he has at PSG. You're right. Neymar ain't gegen pressing. Neymar is not covering every plate of grass. Maybe Neymar was the one to go with over Lionel Messi. How about that? (laughs) All right. All this has me feeling thirsty, Taylor. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, today's show is sponsored by Hydrant. Um, Hydrant, make sure that you don't get thirsty. You don't run out of electrolytes. I don't know if you, um, if you heard the, the ad read where I did this solo, Taylor. I made the point that if you get dehydrated before you do a podcast, your listeners are going to know. I know it's one of your pet Mm -hmm. hates as well. It really is. It's not fun to edit. It's certainly not fun to listen to. We do, when there is considerable mouth noise, we do try to edit it out. And with that in mind, I will say the people who edit shows like Great British Bake Off, I feel so bad for them because they must just have to remove so much eating and mouth noise and like dry pastry. I don't need to hear that in my ears. Uh, But maybe the way they do it is by making everybody drink hydrant uh, because not only does it hydrate you, but it also provides you with the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Let me guess. Sodium, potassium, magnesium. Magnesium. Oh, and zinc. Zinc is the other one. That is correct. Yeah. I, I have no joke. You are correct. <laughs> um, and I, in fact, have hydrant right in front of me. I have blood orange today because, as you said, you got to hydrate a little bit. And as my usual routine is uh, coffee and coffee and coffee, <laughs> hydration helps, Daryl. Hydration helps. The Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> If you would like 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. That's drinkhydrant.com slash soccer for 25% off your first order. Taylor, what was that URL, what I was just saying? Zinc. Drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. I got it right the second time. Thank you very much to Hydrant for sponsoring this episode. Daryl, if we ever get back to making new merch, I am... Right now, demanding that we do the holy trinity of the Total Soccer Show be coffee, coffee, and coffee. <laughs> I mean, I have a t-shirt. I just that, want that. I have a t-shirt that says bikes and coffee and coffee and coffee. 
I know you do. <laughs> we'll adjust that a little bit and we'll make it our own and then we'll make that money. But basically, when we used to work downtown before coronavirus, that was how mm-hmm. I got there and then what I drank, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Taylor, we have a hard out yes, in 25 minutes and we have a Let's few questions going. to go. So, Jackie Troy, this is the, the most interesting question in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Why is Liverpool winning the league such a big deal? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. It's not. It's not obvious if you don't know, right? So Jackie mm-hmm. wants to know why are people surprised? They're a big club. They just won the Champions League last season. They almost won the league last season. Jordan Henderson is likable, and Klopp cried. I get it. But if someone is this dominant, dominant for this long, why is it such a parade? I don't remember hoopla like this about a team winning the league since Leicester, but they had almost gotten relegated the season before. Is it just the title drought, or is it the fact that Klopp and this team are more likable? A couple things there. First off, I would say winning the Champions League and almost winning the title last season is not dominant for this long. It has been a sort of last season was the rapid like ascent of Liverpool, and now here we are. And I do think that's part of it, is how quickly they've become this like impenetrable, unbeatable team. Uh, with that said, I think the likability of Klopp is a major factor. I think he does a very good job of... I think he is naturally pretty charismatic. I do think he cultivates it a little bit. And I think with that, the exciting style of play that Liverpool utilize, it's not Chelsea's Mourinho sitting back and frustrating people and they're boring to watch, but they win every game. It's really exciting games where you might get a 5-0 scoreline and you might get a 5-4 scoreline. They've tried to work on that in the last couple of years. But I think the excitement of the team, the excitement of their style, and then the uh, enthusiasm of the manager uh, factor in for me, for sure. Yeah. I 100% agree. Klopp makes it exciting and easy and even pleasurable to talk about Liverpool. But I think yeah. the big thing is the title drought, right? It's been 30 years since this really, really big team. Like Jackie calls them dominant, but they yeah. haven't won the league since 1990, right? That's the weird thing. Is And they've come, they've come close a couple of times. Yeah, please interject. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, if, if, uh, not saying Jackie is, but if people are, are new to soccer or maybe don't quite like know the history, it is imagine if you, like me, sort of have grown up in an era of the New England Patriots being this dominant juggernaut, they win everything, and then suddenly they don't win for 30 years. It would be really weird that like, hey, they were really good. What happened? Was it Belichick yeah. leaving? Was it Brady? Was it this? And it evolves into like, are they cursed? Like it becomes this like bigger and bigger thing the longer it goes. And I think yeah. that's sort of the context that I think helps to look at it from of this team that were so wildly successful in the 80s, then just had no success for so long aside from the, the one Champions League title that I think it, it, it makes it that much bigger of a narrative uh, that you would probably get if the Patriots then won in 30 years. Yeah, and if you look at, for example, the teams that have won the Champions League in the past few years, like Liverpool, mm-hmm. they've got to be the only team that's won the Champions League twice and not won their own domestic league, right? Right. The other Champions yeah. League winners are like Real Madrid, who do not have trouble um, winning their own league on a, on a pretty regular basis. That's what made it so weird is they were a great big team that always almost always felt like a title challenger and yet did not actually have a Premier League yeah. title. And I'd also mm-hmm. add, there's an extra little um, emotional side to it, which is um, they did win one league title after Hillsborough, right? Hillsborough happened in 89. Liverpool mm-hmm. won the title the following season, 1990. Um, but then Kenny Dalglish leaves, like possibly like the, he basically said he was kind of emotionally burned out from everything that happened post Hillsborough. So it is this weird, um, uh, almost tragic thing of Hillsborough definitely played a role in Dalglish leaving and then the period of not winning the league uh, set in. So I think that's an, a slight extra element to it as well. All right. 
Do we have an answer then? We, we do, and we should move on. Next right. question comes from <laughs> Greg Robillard. Greg Robillard says, Liverpool's midfield. The adjective that comes to mind is ineffable. It's a collection of solid B-plus players, but not, quote, win the EPL with seven games left, unquote, good. Except it is. Are they mm-hmm. Voltron? Can you break down my ineffable fog? I mean, uh, I can try. Because first of all, I mean, they are world-class players. They're incredibly good midfielders. I think just when they're surrounded by the the defense and Virgil van Dijk and how good Alexander-Arnold and Robertson have been, the attacking tri- uh, trio, I was going to say triumvirate and then switch to trio, and that's what happened. Uh, I think it's easy to overlook them, as I've already said. And I almost feel like they are the like faithful lieutenants, the devotees, like the ones who most bought in and therefore will just kind of do whatever is asked of them because I think there is a full faith in Jurgen Klopp from a player like Jordan Henderson, who I think Klopp could say, stand on your head this game. And he'd be like, well, there's probably a reason for it. Sure, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's sort of buying into the system and the system rewarding them with success and increasing their ability sort of makes you buy in even more to the point where I think there's just such consistency and chemistry within that midfield that it elevates the performance maybe slightly above what you would expect. So I'm going to ignore the the idea of world-class because that's not mm-hmm. necessarily uh, something we can quantify, right? But I'm going to disagree with Greg's uh, characterization of them as B-plus players, right? I'm going to say yeah, these, are, mm-hmm. these are A or A-plus players. They're just not flash players. And I think yeah. a great example is Giorgio Wijnaldum, right? If you watch Giorgio Wijnaldum for an entire game, he is always massively impressive. He's just not flash. And if you'd have watched him at Newcastle, You'd have seen a very impressive player who covered a lot of ground, won a lot of tackles, played a lot of smart passes, offered an attacking threat, but he's not like four step overs and a nutmeg and he gets on the highlight reel kind of player, right? So I think in the Liverpool midfield, you just have a lot of players who don't make highlight reels, but just do a lot of stuff really, really, really well to make everything tick. Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to our International Champions Cup of History, which we will be going back to, like, it's essentially they have three Didier Deschamps to some extent. That they have three <laughs> players who will do all the work that will be the water carriers, but in the best possible way to then facilitate other people doing more flashy, glitzy things. And it is a tough job in Liverpool's midfield, right? When they do the positional yeah. press, you have to, like, make sure to mark the opposition uh, midfielder. When they do the Gagan press, you have to go and join the attackers and close stuff down uh, really quickly. And when you're building out from the back, you've got to be really smart about passing and moving and finding space and then like i mentioned with like uh, when robertson goes forward when aldam has to drop in like knowing how you're connected to the other players it's a very 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 complicated job and only so many players are smart enough and capable enough to do it and those are the players that are in liverpool's midfield like i don't know if bruno fernandez could play in liverpool's central midfield for example he's a magnificent player and i love to watch him and he does all kinds of flash stuff but he might be I don't want to call him selfish because I don't think he's selfish, but his, his sort of like attacking instinct might not fit with the entire Liverpool system. You know what I mean? I, I can't think of a, of a of the three Liverpool midfielders that we would say are like the usual starters. I would never think of one of them as being like, oh, he's the obvious number 10 in that tree. Yes, whereas exactly. Bruno would be the obvious number 10. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't mean this just to pick on Manchester United. This is because I just watched Man United Brighton before we started recording this. Nemanja Matic, I don't think, could do it either because he's too much <laughs> He's too much on the defensive side, right? Like he's a little bit too much of a purely defensive midfielder who doesn't offer You're enough guy, going forward. No, but I think it's like, normally it's a good balance in a midfield to have one defensive guy and one attacking guy mm-hmm. and one in-between guy like Paul Pogba. I would argue that even though he has an outsized personality, maybe 
poor, even though he's way more flash, poor Pogba's maybe the only one with the balanced skill set that could fit in this Liverpool midfield. Yeah, I can see that. You see what I'm I saying? Um, so yeah, I do. But then, but the, he's the one that has the attacking skill set and the defensive skill set. Mm-hmm. Fernandez only has one and Matic only has one. All of Liverpool's players are pretty complete players. I... I don't know how quickly Nemanja Matic would retire from soccer if he had to do some of the running for Liverpool, but I know the answer is very quickly. <laughs> All right, next question. You ready? Miles um, McNichol. Mm-hmm. Miles McNichol. What formation is arguably the best to counter Liverpool's game? Uh, the answer is Atletico Madrid. Uh, <laughs> I would say there, there's two. There are two answers here in my mind. One of them is a sort of four four two low block, stay very disciplined, and then counter brutally. Uh, because I think also it is the case for Liverpool, and this is where some of that evolution of style has come from. That they want to hit you on the break because it is not necessarily their strongest uh, skill set in breaking down compact teams. And so if you can They're frustrate definitely them, definitely better at it and- in the last year or two, though. Like since that from, is true. Since Fabinho, I would argue, they've been a mm-hmm. lot, lot better at it. True, but still definitely not their preferred way to attack and score goals. So I think if you can sort of already put them into their B strategy, you're winning a little bit. And I think Atletico showed that. Uh, one point from former co-host Albert, you could also go with a back three with wing backs and try to ping back Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold because if you do that, you're not getting the kind of lethal service and the big crossfield balls to one another that you do often get. And then if you have maybe one of your defenders step out and you keep numbers in the middle, you clog it up and you make it difficult for them to find any consistency there. That is another possible way but i would go with the 442 low block simply because we know that works because we've seen it work this season i'm not sure that it's necessarily formation and more yeah style and approach is more important yeah. right it's more about low block or mid block personally i think maybe mid block which is more like what atletico did mm. in the champions league but even then you've gotta you've gotta get lucky right because atletico had that yep. lucky lucky goal um after remember off the corner kick or the set piece really early in the game that gave them the one nil lead um and even Watford, when Watford beat Liverpool, they did go low block and counter, but they got lucky in that probably that foul when Joe Gomez got pushed probably should have been called. Um, so there's no, there's no like guaranteed thing where every time Liverpool have come up against a certain style, they've been beaten, right? Because you can say low block, but they beat the Crystal Palace low block 4-0 <laughs> last year. So it's got to be a high quality opposition doing a, a certain thing. And even then it's not yeah. guaranteed you need a bit of luck. It It is a weird thing that there is, like, I still do this sometimes, that there is this natural idea of like, oh, well, if they're playing that formation, you do this formation yeah. and that negates that. It's just like, nah, that's not how it works. Yeah. They're all very good. They can find a way through. I think it is worth just having this quick point made on the Total Sock Show, right? It's not, formations are not really very informative. No. It's just the shape that you initially line up in. And that can happen, like, you can push that formation way up the field, way back down the field. That formation might expand and be really, uh, uh, like open and expansive, or it might be really compact and all stuck together. It's not really a good guide to what's happening on the field. I would say style it's not is more the size of the formation, Daryl. It's what you do. It is, and what you do with it is the style and the system. I think that's the more mm-hmm. important um, idea. Anyway, ra- yes, rather than me banging on and banging on, let's ask the next question. Um, let's go with uh, Sagar. Sir- I feel like I made. I feel like I made a sexual analogy, and then you extended it one further, even if you didn't mean to. Correct. Sagar Surumagiri asks um, Mm. or says you made an interesting observation that Liverpool's success needed them to reduce their over-reliance on Salah however there is still a feeling that beyond the current front three of Salah, Firmino and Mane there isn't adequate quality that if any one of those three is injured or absent for a long period Liverpool may be in trouble is that still valid for next season? 
this is a tough one because like I don't know if it was valid for this season because they did just fine if they didn't have one of those players in there. They still scored goals, as we talked about with Divac Origi and then with Minamino coming in. I think the answer is just that they still have the depth for now. And so it's certainly going to be a little bit of a drop off uh, if you have maybe like a long term injury or if Sajamane blows out his ACL in the first week then yeah, I think there's going to need to be some uh, accounting for that and figuring out how to deal with that loss. So yes, they'd be in trouble, but I think no more so than any team when they lose a key performance. Yeah, and I I would argue, we've talked a lot about the system, right? I think if mm-hmm. any player that plays in that front three knows the system, the like how to gag and press or how mm-hmm. to do the positional press and then can be involved in the attack, like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain has played on that right wing and done really, really well, right? Um, Minamino might be able to do it. Um, Divock Origi can do it. I think as long as like at least one or two of those players are still involved, I'd actually argue that maybe Firmino is the most important because his job is the hardest. And that if, mm-hmm. if he goes down and can't be replaced, then maybe the system starts to, starts to break down. So I don't know. I, it, it makes sense to say that it's a valid concern. And yet it's never a thing that has actually been a problem for Liverpool, right? So it's hard to no, say that I- there's evidence for it. I think the only time it's been a problem for Liverpool was before Klopp, because you look at, say, Brendan Rodgers bringing in Christian Benteke because he wants a conventional number nine who's going to be big and win stuff up top. Like, Liverpool don't sort of have that, like, okay, but if we have to go with another look, we'll go with this. But then if, say, Firmino is out, now we only have Benteke in there, and he's not going to do the same thing. Like, all of the deputies, at the very least, understand the style of play and can execute it enough to be the understudy. You're not going to have to fundamentally change what you do. So I think they're actually, in some ways, better prepared for yeah. the loss of a major player than many other teams. And it's not like the Luis Suarez era, right? Where it really was about, mm-hmm. hey, Luis Suarez is scoring all these goals. He's what's making yeah. all this happen. It's definitely more the mm-hmm. system than one star player who's eventually going to leave you for Barcelona. I forgot that that was one of my points as to why they've been so consistently good this season. What, yes, what's, good point. What's that? Oh, that it's not like one player related. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, mm-hmm. All right, next question. Christian Ott. Christian Ott. Yeah. Has, has Liverpool made a bad transfer signing during the Klopp era? The the answer here is no, I think. I would say the biggest, like, flop that you could look at potentially is Nabi Keita, but even then he's not a flop. It's just he hasn't hit the form yet, and I say yet because yeah, you mean ti- that seems to be the case. Title-winning Nabi Keita? exactly there you go so like he's it's still like a player who's not frozen out and moved on for a lot of money honestly gary neville said it really really well i don't know if you saw this uh this tweet but he said jürgen klopp uh when jürgen klopp arrived i didn't think he could win the title with the spending power of man city man united and chelsea but he's turned 30 million pound players into 130 million pound players while other teams have turned 130 million pound players into 30 million Yes. I mean, a lot of like really, really good signings, right? I think guys like yep. Giorgio Wijnaldum, um, Mohamed Salah, Sajjo Mane, these are all just impossibly good signings. I think because he knew what he wanted to do with them. So they mm-hmm. absolutely fit perfectly. That's why I have faith in the Minamino signing, even though yep. so far he hasn't looked good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if we are looking for a player that, ha- that didn't work out though, that Jurgen Klopp signed, I would look to two signings he made early on um, in Loris mm-hmm. Karius and Ragnar Klavan. Yep. They were yeah, both signed fair. in the early days of the Klopp era. So what's that, like 2016 or so? And they were both signed from the Bundesliga. And I think it was a thing where these were players that Klopp was familiar with. Uh, Karius came from Mainz and Klaven came from Augsburg. So these are definitely players he would have come up against um, in his time at Dortmund. Both cost around $5 million. Both eventually moved on and were replaced by much, much better players. So, but it wasn't a big, I think the, the reason we can't really say it's a terrible sign is it's not like he dropped 40 million on either of those guys. Right. 
Yeah, he he didn't do a Man City fullback yeah, sort of situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the guys that I thought was a flop, but I think I'm wrong, Marco Grujic. Do you know this guy? Um, he was signed quite a few seasons ago and has been on loan at Hertha Berlin for the past couple. My silence is my answer. Okay, yeah. So he's a Serbian <laughs> central midfielder, signed three or four years ago. He's been on loan at Hertha Berlin for the last couple of years and he's been really highly praised at Hertha Berlin. So he may be a guy that comes back and you see him next season and you're like, oh, where did, where did this guy come from? And it turns out he's been a Liverpool player all along. He's just turned 24. Mm. So he might be like replacing, I don't know, Adam Lallana in the Liverpool midfield rotation. All right. Uh, yeah. So I think I think those are those are good answers. Uh, well, well done, Mr. Grove. Uh, penultimate question yeah. comes from Stuart Colley. Uh, what underrated change or transfer helped transform Liverpool, uh, Liverpool FC? Uh, we all know buying Virgil Van Dijk or Salah were massive. Basically, what was transformative that nobody talks about? Again, with Liverpool, with them winning the title and having the success they have, and winning the Champions League last year, a lot of this has been talked about. But I'm going to go with like what has been less talked about. I mean, for me, it's still the um, the the switch after 2018 to the less heavy metal all the time, uh, like not always high pressing, and more focus on mm-hmm. possession football and building out of the back and and making that count. I honestly think that's the big big turning point. All right, uh, I I looked at this. I'm glad you did that because I looked at this more from a transfer perspective. Okay. Um, are you are you ready for? My yes, answer? I am. All right. I think there are three transfers that I think are, are pretty good and transformative and kind of under the radar. Uh, Andy Robertson for eight million pounds is absurd, given how good he has yeah. been for them. Similarly, Jean Matip for on a free uh, for what he has been for Liverpool. I think those tend to go under the radar. But I think the one that has sort of helped transform them the most is a sale, and it's Felipe Coutinho. Uh, because for, I believe, the $160 million they got for him, uh, and there was like, even I think at the time he moved, there was some speculation that like, this might not hurt them nearly as much as people might think. And instead, it has led to the situation that I believe with all of Klopp's spending and some of the money that has been spent, their net spend is still only 70 million pounds, which is basically not even a full Virgil van Dijk. Because <laughs> they are so good at selling players for money. Danny Ings for $24 million, Mignolet for 7.7, Solanke for 23, uh, Mamadou Saku for $31 million. I, I've gone to dollars on this one. But like their sales have been, I think, really important in being able to invest again and not just c- get caught up on big star players and trying to sign somebody else to replace place a big star i think by avoiding that mentality yes. they have been able to reinvest really successfully. i actually think that's probably the thing the transformative thing is not being uh yeah not being focused on star players and having to replace mm-hmm. big names but just again uh club system the players that fit that system and it doesn't matter um if they're the type of players that sort of sell shirts or move merchandise the second that you sign them what's important is what they how they fit in with the rest of the team right um, yeah. And you mentioned Robertson. I think just uh, on both sides, the massive upgrade at fullback that was buying Andy mm-hmm. Robertson to replace Moreno um, and having Trent Alexander-Arnold promoted from the youth team to replace Nathaniel Klein um, at right back. I mean, they're now two of the best players on the team, right? Robertson is mm-hmm. like having a late arriving left winger on the left. And Trent Alexander-Arnold is essentially like having David Beckham play right back for you. That's how I think of Trent. Yes. That's well said, yeah. dude. A faster David Beckham. Yeah. And yes, I'm with you. Um, I, I also, I was going to try to cheat because so often with a player like Trent Alexander-Arnold, it is like, yes, he's a youth player, but he like transferred from, I don't know, MK Dons at the age of 14 or something like that. It's always like, a, a nope, he's been there since he was six. <laughs> like you can't even get that with him. He has just been there through and through. Final question. Mm-hmm. Joshua Bishop. 
Does Liverpool's loss in the Champions League round of 16, this is the Atletico Madrid game we talked about, does it at all diminish their accomplishment of winning the Premier League? I don't think so. Uh, just because it's a different competition. They won the Champions League last year, so it's not as though like this is the first success they've had in a very long time. I think it hurts it a little bit just because people wanted to see them go further and and repeat and do the double, which would be you know uh, an amazing achievement for them. So it's it's more of a bummer than it does diminish anything. My, so I've got copious notes for most of these questions. For this one, I just wrote mm-hmm. no. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Because <laughs> it doesn't, right? It's been 30 years coming. No. That's why everybody's so excited about it. It's 30 years coming, plus the coronavirus made them wait, which I think to, actually to answer Jackie Choi's question, maybe has added an extra element of drama to it because the fact they got so close and yeah. like one time Gerard slipped and this time the whole country shut down for coronavirus. But now <laughs> but now they finally did it. Do you know what I'm saying? You mentioned oh, like man. maybe it mm-hmm. looked like they were, they were cursed. Um, and yeah, and the fact that right now they are Champions League holders and Premier League champions, they won't be by the end of August. But I would argue no, because it was a thing they wanted so much anyway that it doesn't diminish the Premier League title win. I agree. There we are. I had no notes for this one. So there you go. <laughs> um, anything else to add in the couple of minutes we have left before we really do have to shut this down? Just just that, yeah, one quick thing, which is more of like a thought experiment for you, Daryl. In talking about Liverpool teams of the past and specifically that slip from Steven Gerrard, in that moment, it's like iconic because it's Steven Gerrard and because of what it signifies both for him and for the club. Is there a player like that for Liverpool now that like if there if that slip were to happen again, I don't like I'm not trying to troll Liverpool fans or anything like that. I'm just wondering, do they have that anymore or is it that they're so balanced that like, yeah, Virgil van Dijk did that like, ah, it's a big mistake and he'll probably be kicking himself. But it's not this sort of iconic moment in the same way it is with Steven Gerrard. Yeah, I mean, there's a special thing, right? Because Gerrard's from Liverpool, Mm -hmm. he's a Liverpool fan. He was captain. He was coming towards the end of his career and it looked like this was the time he was finally going to win the Premier League. So to take the if you take the Liverpool like boyhood team element out of it, even then it's really it's still tough to find a player who's like talismanic for the team. Because yeah. I think the thing we've come back to again and again over this is this Liverpool team, um, it's it's all about like being greater than the sum of its parts, or at least you would expect mm-hmm. them to be if you just looked at them doing keepy uppies or step overs, right? It's uh, it's yeah. a team that's all about the system working. So may, yeah, maybe not. Maybe there's not a player that would that would be that it, that it would feel the same way. The, you mentioned Van Dyke. If Van Dyke made a defensive error, there would be an irony because he just he's like does not make those mistakes. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that would feel weird. I'd honestly I'd feel like there was a glitch in the matrix. That would be what convinced yeah. me we were in the darkest timeline. Not even <laughs> not even coronavirus and the the presidency and all mm. sorts of other things. It, it would be that a Van Dyke mistake would make me think. Wait a minute, this is simulated. Yeah. And so we're not we're not going to have to deal with that. We are instead going to have Liverpool as the champions, obviously. Uh, And the final thing, I guess, for me, then, is like when we went back and looked at that 2005 Champions League winning team with Liverpool, it was a team that was very much uh, greater than the sum of its parts. And it was like, how dare you disrespect Vladimir Schmitzer? (laughs) Uh, we both saw some of the performances <laughs> in that game, my friend. Uh, and, and I think like you look at this current team and it's strange to say that like they are maybe better than you would expect them to be across the board. And simultaneously, I think every single one of them starts for that 2005 team. Like Ooh. it is still an incredibly good team that is then also incredibly good as a team. Oh, like, it's Taylor. individually very good and then better. As Why a team. are you doing this with like one minute to go in the time <laughs> we have allotted? You're talking about, we've spent half of the show talking about how that Liverpool midfield three in the current team, mm-hmm. it like works so well together, but none of them are star players. And you're going to 
not replace them with Gerard and Alonso. Nah, right? yeah, you're right, I've made good this job. really hard already, right? No, you have. That's a good point. I think all I mean to say is that this team, it's like in talking about how like, oh, maybe like, like he's not like an A plus, but he's an A or he's not world class, which I know you avoided. It's just worth remembering that at fundamentally, they're an incredibly, incredibly good team that then also elevated their performance this season. And you'll get to watch them seven more times this season. There are seven more Premier League games Mm. to go, including the game against Manchester City on Thursday. Um, All right, Taylor, though, I am going to wrap up and say thank you for taking the time to talk to me about Liverpool Football Club today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening. And we will be back to talk to you again very soon. 